Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We've come to verses 7 through 12. We'll take as a section, analyze that portion of Paul's great letter to the Galatians as necessary letter, possibly the earliest letter he wrote. This to a church or churches that started strong. They received the gospel and uh, we're off and running, as the analogy in our text tells us. And somewhere, uh, pretty early on yet, uh, teaching came in that distorted the gospel and made it no gospel at all. Made it the same old news, the same old story of having to try to earn your salvation, which no one can do. And so Paul writes to correct this addition to Christ. In addition to Christ and faith in him and his complete work was added works things he had to do to be right with God. And he writes this letter to correct this church and correct us and continually confront us with this important reality that God has provided for our salvation totally in Christ. And he even gives us the faith to grasp hold of Christ. All the glory is God's in salvation. It's not at all that God does not require of us obedience. He surely does. But he does so as securely adopted children of his redeemed by the blood of Christ, rather than slaves trying hard to earn their redemption, something we could never do. So, with that in mind, follow as I read Galatians 5, starting at verse 7 through verse 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Father, as we have sung earlier, so we confess that man's work falleth, Christ availeth. He is all our righteousness. He, our Savior, has forever set us free from the dire distress. Through his merit, O Lord, we inherit light and peace and even happiness. Lord, guide us again by your truth, for your word is truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we look at our passage this morning, look at verse 11 to begin. I want to spend some time addressing a very important phrase that is laid within verse 11 and then back up and look at the passage together. But verse 11 is important for us. It contains a concept, a scriptural concept, or theme, you might say, that runs throughout the Bible. And we have to understand it, I think, especially for our day, because constantly the issue of the cross is being attacked, ignored. It has to be defended because it is so crucial to true Christianity. Look at verse 11. It says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And we'll address that in a moment. He's talking about the charge of duplicity that came against him. He says something else next, though, that we need to analyze. It says, in that case, the offense of the cross 
has been removed. The offense of the cross. So he says here very explicitly that there is an offense with regard to the cross. Now, for a moment, think of how often you see that symbol. It's everywhere. Uh, the cross. It's in every form imaginable. You can see it everywhere. But I think people uh, have obscured its meaning in the depth of what that symbol represents. There is an offense with the cross when the cross is rightly understood. It's a built-in offense. It's supposed to be offensive. Uh, that's not a mistake. It's not that we've taken offense where we shouldn't. No, the cross is, in fact, in a complex way, offensive. And if it isn't offending in some way, it's not being preached or taught as God has given it. So, this is an important phrase for us to understand if we are going to understand the whole of the message of Galatians and, in fact, the whole of the message of the gospel. Clearly, Paul says that the message of the cross is offensive. He says it here and in other places. How is it offensive? This is important. It's a key to understanding not only this passage, but the gospel itself. How is it offensive? I want to give you a preliminarily three ways in which the cross is offensive as we approach this passage. First of all, the cross is offensive because of its primitive or seemingly primitive message. That's the charge levied against the cross and why it offends people today when we talk about the cross in all its details, what it means. You know, when I say the cross, I don't just mean a wooden symbol somewhere or a picture of a cross. What I mean by the cross, what the Bible means by the cross, is the death of Christ on that instrument of execution for the purpose of providing redemption. That picture, when you unpack it, becomes incredibly offensive to people. And the first reason why it's offensive, it's so primitive. I mean, it happened 2,000 years ago. These unevolved people in the Roman Empire looking to this event and seeing what had been done by it and just how horrible it is, how primitive it is. Good thing we don't handle things that way now, people will say. Prideful man will look upon the notion of one man dying, dying a most awful death, for the rest of us, it's so simple and it's too primitive. It's just way too easy. Prideful man, especially modern man, will look at the message of Christ dying at the hands of an unsophisticated mob is terribly unevolved. Prideful, autonomous man, man who wants his own autonomy from God, is offended by the idea that he or she is in need of the sacrifice of someone else especially someone living in the backward times of the first century. We've learned so much since those half-cavemen lived back 2,000 years ago. We're just so far advanced beyond the Greeks and the Romans. Everything was so violent back then. Such a primordial or prehistoric message that comes from an age that's bygone. We can draw some things out of what happened back then, but the essence of it is just so... Let's just forget about that. It's so simple. We've come so far since then. Paul understood and forecasted that this would be the reaction people would have when he wrote in Corinthians, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's offensive because it's primitive. At least it's seen as primitive today. But there's a second reason why the cross is offensive and why Paul refers in verse 11 to the cross as being an offense. Secondly, it's offensive just for sheer violence. Just what the cross means, what it meant for Jesus to be executed on the cross. It's a symbol of torture, 
pain and agony for anyone who understands what that cross meant, how it was used, how it was developed. The cross conjures an image of of grotesqueness. It's inhuman to our thinking that we would come up with such a way to kill somebody. Modern forms of execution are relatively clean and neat, even in countries we consider backwards. Uh, Today, in our day, we have lethal injection. A person goes to sleep, essentially. Even in firing squads and hangings and all the ways in which execution is carried out, it's relatively swift and, in some cases, almost painless. Crucifixion, by comparison, the cross is barbaric. There's no two ways about it. It's barbaric. The cross. The Romans expertly crafted the most extreme form of torture and death ever known and used it on Christ. The cross was a form of torture and execution that brought a person to the the edge of blacking out but not letting them go unconscious so as to inflict the most pain possible on every part of their physical being and psychological well-being as well. Think of all the ways in which it affected someone physically. Torn muscles, bruised tissue, pierced nerves, lacerated skin, blood loss, dehydration, dislocated joints, a slow asphyxiation that would take hours, sometimes even days, to finally kill a person. All this while naked, under psychological torture for the duration of it, being mocked by people. Birds of prey feeding on you, insects biting you, the sun beating down on you. If not fortunate enough to die before the Sabbath day, you would have your lower legs clubbed and broken to hasten your demise. The cross is offensive to so many because it is brutal. We don't like the picture of it. It depicts something so seemingly inhuman that we don't want to cast it before our eyes or our thoughts. The history of the cross and the actuality of Christ's death on the cross and his torment is not often denied by anybody. People will say that's how this man Jesus died. However, the relationship of that event to people personally is widely rejected. After all, we have overcome such a violent, bloody concept. As if we live in a peaceful, nonviolent world. Many modern men find the cross offensive because of how violent it was. But there's a third reason why the cross is offensive. I spend this time because it's so important that we understand the offense of the cross. The cross of Christ is offensive because it declares something about us that we do not want to hear. The cross of Christ declares that our sin is so great that it requires the ultimate punishment We don't want to hear that. We don't want to admit that. The cross of Christ declares that our sin was so great that only one who has ever lived could shoulder its burden for us. We cannot save ourselves. That's offensive to us. The cross of Christ declares that our sin brought about the necessity of the violence that came down on Christ and we could do nothing to improve upon it. The cross of Christ is a message of complete sufficiency in Christ and total depravity and inability on our part. Bankruptcy in us. That's what's so offensive about the cross. It's not so much that we feel bad that someone else had to pay that punishment. Really, it's it's more insidious than that. It's about the idea that we could not save ourselves. 
That's what's so offensive. The message of the cross is that I could do nothing to make myself right with God, that only it could only be done by someone else. That offends me. The cross is an offense to the self-righteous. In all of us, some level, are recovering legalists at best. We think we can do things to make ourselves more lovable or acceptable to God. The man or the woman who is relying on his or her own strength for salvation does not like the doctrine of the cross. Spurgeon spoke of how the cross offends from the perspective of the, of the preacher preaching the cross. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, but if he starts, the preacher that is, to cast the sinner down into the dust and to teach what Christ himself taught, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and that in the Scriptures all men are declared to be dead in transgressions and sins. Then the proud sinner will turn away and say, I'm not going to be so insulted as to have my own powers leveled to the ground. Am I to be made into a mere machine or into a piece of clay? And to lie passive in the potter's hands, I will not submit to such an indignity. If the minister will give him a little to do himself, and let him sacrifice a little to his own idol, he will drink down the false doctrine as the ox drinks down water. But since we will tell him he is powerless, like the poor bleeding man when the Samaritan met him, he says, I will have nothing to do with you. The cross is offensive because it declares something about us that we do not want to hear. We are sinners and only God can save us. I am such a heinous sinner that saving me will require, has required, the punishment of Christ on the cross. And I can add nothing to it because I have nothing to add. I'm a poor sinner and only Jesus Christ is everything to me. Some of you say amen to that. But realize there are others who mock that notion. This is why Paul wrote again in Corinthians, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The cross of Christ is offensive. And you know, for all the possible litmus tests one might apply to the local church to determine if it is biblically faithful, perhaps none is more telling than how a particular church views and teaches the cross of Christ. Luther in his day recognized this. Look at what he said. He said, when the offense of the cross ceases, when the rage of the enemies of the cross abates, when everything is quiet, it is a sign that the devil is the doorkeeper of the church and that the pure doctrine of God's word has been lost. So what does this have to do with the Galatians and Paul's letter to them? There were some infiltrating the church 
in teaching that the cross was not sufficient in itself to save them. The cross plus circumcision was the message. The cross plus some kind of obedience or some other thing you could offer to God, that's what was required. While subtle, lessening the need for the cross had the effect of gutting the gospel. However slight as it may have seemed, putting salvation back into the hands of man, even if only slightly, was a denial of our need of God's redemption. The cross of Christ, Christianity for that matter, is offensive because it insists that salvation comes only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, embodied in the cross itself. Now, this short phrase that we have taken time to consider in verse 11 is found in the midst of a passage that reveals a pattern that remains common in people and in churches today, so it's important for us to study. Let's look at verse 7 first, the very first phrase. There is an initial receptivity and acceptance to the gospel displayed by the Galatians, and it happens in people as well. Verse 7, Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. So these Gentiles, with no previous uh, background in Christianity or Judaism, its predecessor, they were running well when they received the gospel. When they heard the message that their sins could be forgiven by faith in Christ, his work, his substitution for them, they received it and accepted it. And they were running well, according to Paul, when they first received this. And Paul is fond of the, the race running metaphor. He uses it in many places. It's likened unto a long-distance race where uh, you are running in stride and you're keeping a certain speed and a certain pace. And he's saying, you were running well. You were on course. You were, you were just the right stride, just the right pace. So there was this initial receptivity that we see. And we know this was the case because as corrective as Galatians is, and it is, he still implies several times that they were doing well at one point. But that's why he says in the very beginning of the book, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ. So they were committed to the grace of Christ at one time. Chapter 3 says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, the implication is that they were in a good place, but then fell out of that place because of the distortion that had come in. You know, the initial preaching of the gospel is always freeing in it releases people from bondage. This is the truth that happens in our own lives. We come to Christ, whatever your background is. There is this, this sense of freedom you have, a sense of security that you never experienced before. Shame is lifted. There's a loosening of the guilt that had its grip. Uh, each one, hopefully, can remember that, that joy of your salvation that David prays concerning years after he had trusted in God. Uh, hopefully, you can still remember what that was like, the simplicity of it. And many people will say to me that, boy, it was so much more simple back then. And, and while they don't want to go back and they recognize they see things new now that they've been studying God's Word and have been walking this in through the steps of this life, but there is a sense in which it's wonderful to, to recapture that sense you had at the beginning of being set free, that receptivity, that acceptance. It's much like when you see a child receive that message. Uh, they hear it, and you don't have to talk a child into believing they're a sinner. It's one of my favorite things about children uh, sharing uh, Christ with children. We used to be part of an outreach ministry at the church I started going to when I was a young person, and we would go deliver the message of the gospel to people at a campground, and many of which were unchurched, had not heard the message, not clearly anyways. In, in every time we would share this message, 
there would be no less than half of these children raising their hands to appreciate the fact that they were sinners and that Jesus was the only way they could be saved. And we would follow up with them over time. It wasn't just simply come forward, sign a card, and then we can go brag to people about how we got people saved. It was get their information and keep interacting with them over the years and try to write back and forth, see how they were growing, see them plugged into churches. And it's amazing how as young people are confronted with the message that their sin needs forgiveness, it needs redemption, they accept it. They just get it. And the older you get, the more you rationalize and you pour on the idea that you don't need this message, and the more offensive the message of the cross becomes because you know what it means, what it implies, what it says. But there is an initial receptivity and acceptance of the gospel that you see and experience when you personally have received it, when you personally have become born again, but you also get to see in people when they come to Christ. That's what's so wonderful about doing any kind of outreach ministry where you get to see people come to Christ. It's great for a church that may be well-grounded doctrinally, been around for a while, to see new believers because it restores to them the joy of salvation they see in those who are coming. This is happening in Galatia. This happens in the church today. We see it in our own church. New people come and they come to Christ and it, it encourages us. It makes us not focus so much on things that don't matter, but makes us focus on things that do. And then when we do study the things we study, we see how it feeds the development of those who have just come to Christ and the depth that it brings. Think back to when you first heard the message of the gospel, the release, the security, the surety, the gratefulness, the gratitude that came. Such was the case with the Galatians. And such is the case with so many churches, so many movements. But then look at what happens in the second part of verse 7. As the gospel uh, gets attacked and sometimes distorted. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Hindered you. Literally, this is the word directly related to running a race. Who cut in on you? So you imagine running this course. And as you're running along, going, well, someone cuts in on you. It slows you down, obstructs you, hinders you. Who hindered you? Who cut in on you in this race? And please notice that when Paul's speaking to the people of the church, he reserves judgment and condemnation, not for them, but for those who are teaching it. So he speaks very harshly to those who teach this doctrine. He speaks more pastorally, direct, yes, but pastorally to those who are under that teaching and may be influenced by it. He seems to speak with two levels of sharpness. Here he's speaking to us, the people of the church. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? It doesn't mean they got knocked off the track, but they were in danger of not running the race any longer. The particular hindrance we know from this church was the adding of works of the law to Christ for salvation. And verse 8 addresses this directly. This persuasion, Paul says, this addition of circumcision to Christ for salvation, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. We know back to the beginning of this book that it is God who called them. And what is Paul saying? He's saying that the message of faith in Christ plus works is not a message from God. And if it's not a message from God, then who is this message from? No matter how religious it looks, no matter how many rites and rituals we have to show it, who is it from who gives this message, even in the midst of wonderful steeple churches, who gives this message if it's not from God? He says to the Corinthians, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Make no mistake, there is no difference ultimately between the religious prideful person who trusts in their works sitting in church on Sunday and the person who ridicules and scorns God. He doesn't ever set foot in the church. The source is the same. The message they believe comes from the same one. And it's not from God. Well-meaning or not, those who add to the pure message of the gospel are bringing a message that isn't from God, but it's from the devil himself. Such error will destroy the gospel message. We see that in verse 9. What a great picture. Verse 9. It's used by Paul in another place. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There are hardly any pictures uh, that illustrate how just a little bit of error, a little distortion, messes everything up more than this usage of, of leavening or the use of yeast. Think of a loaf of bread. What it takes to make a loaf of bread. It takes a half a cup of water, half a cup, maybe a cup of water, an egg. Butter, sugar, if you like it sweet, teaspoon of salt, three to four cups of flour. So the vast majority of this clump you have in the bowl is made up of all these things. And how much yeast do you put into that? One package, which I looked on the package, and that is one quarter of an ounce goes into that bowl in order to make it rise. And you know what it's like if you forget the yeast. The pancake, the hockey puck, just a little leaven makes it rise, gives it its definition. Without it, it's not the same. You can get a little less of some of the other things in here and still have bread. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of air is not just innocent. It's not just cute. It's not, oh, it's not that... It brings distortion that makes it no gospel at all. And it's not from God. Leaven, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. This reference is used by Jesus himself when he speaks to the Pharisees who were, who, who are kings of adding to the message. One of the places Jesus addresses them, Luke records, in the meantime when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, still despite this distortion, there is a confidence that is revealed by Paul about the gospel winning out. Look at verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. So there's a confidence that the Lord will, will give the apostolic message its, its lasting power because it's from God. He doesn't mean to say that I, Paul, am the great teacher, but that Paul, the apostle, is teaching the apostolic message of the gospel, which is true in the apostles' time, it was true in the prophets' time before, it's always been true. And he's saying that that message that I give you is the one that will last through all the ebbs and flows of error that come into the church. Heresies will assail the church, but the message will remain strong. Churches, local churches will come and go. Denominations will come and go. Seminaries will come and go. But the message of the gospel, it will stay true. It will be there. It will continue. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, it seems very personal that he may have some individual in mind. 
But most, most commentators believe this is what is called the generic singular usage of the language. It's, it's speaking in a personified way, not so much that there's a person, but for individuals in the church, there may have been a person, and it could have been a different person for each group. If a multitude of false teachers come in, maybe one teacher, you, you have heard their teaching, and that's the person that comes to your mind, and a different group has a different person. And so it's a generic singular use, simply saying that whatever individuals are teaching this message, which isn't from God, may he or she bear the penalty that comes. The anathema, as he speaks of back in chapter 1 of Galatians. Now he has to address something very interesting. You know, today you see uh, political figures just about every day having to address all sorts of accusations. Some of them true, some of them not, some, more, some of them in between. And that figure seems to, whoever it is, always has to, to get on the air and, and give, their, give their side of the story. Now we're not given exactly what Paul is addressing in verse 11, the first portion, but I think we can figure it out. It doesn't say explicitly, but I think that we can by deduction understand what he's saying. He says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted, still being persecuted? See, what happened was, no doubt the Judaizers noted that Paul practiced something unusual. That is, in the case of Titus, the Greek, he forbade him from being circumcised. Because he believed that by letting Titus do that, it would be a statement that would make people believe you had to do that to be right with God. But in the case of Timothy... He encourages Timothy to be circumcised because he'd be dealing with people where this would be a stumbling block ethnically. He wasn't talking about it being necessary for salvation, but he had two different practices with two different of his disciples and people who were leaders in the church. And so the Judaizers say, look, this guy preaches it too. Look what he did with Timothy. And he's saying, wait, if I preach it, what he means by preach it, if I say that it's necessary for salvation, why am I being persecuted? Clearly, he's speaking against it. So he addresses those who are confronting him in verse 11. And he says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, if I am preaching circumcision and believe it is necessary for salvation, that I have removed the offense of the cross, which we have already spoken of and analyzed and understand what it means, that it's only the cross that can save us. And I've taken away the offense by saying I could offer something to God. The gospel slides even in the most historically faithful churches. We should not be surprised when we see it. What safeguards this? What brings correction and change, of course? The same thing that called the church into existence. It's the thing that keeps it and corrects it. The Word of God brings correction. Look at verse 10 through 12 again, but particularly verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In the case, In that case... The offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's hard core. Any way you look at it. No way to soften that. That's what it says. He utters a curse. A particularly brutal one if you think about it. it please understand his usage of a curse here is likened unto the, the psalmist who speaks of those who hate God, who distort his message. And the psalmist prays for God to bring judgment upon them because they are, in effect, humanly speaking, bringing condemnation upon those who follow him. So, so God, bring your punishment upon them. And since the issue here was circumcision, it's most likely that Paul is saying this to reference that. Very vivid. No one would miss it. Everyone would get it. 
you know, there is a time to pray for curse. It should only be according to the Word of God. It should not be personally between me and someone else thinking I want to see them cursed. But rather, it should have to do, the way the Bible puts it, a prayer, uh, an imprecatory prayer against anything that would assail the glory of God. Do you know, even when you pray for the Lord to come quickly, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, what are you praying for? That Jesus comes back and everyone skips around? No, he comes back and judges his enemies. So praying for the Lord come quickly itself is a prayer of imprecation. That's what it is. The Word of God brings correction. The whole of the message of Galatians is an aim towards correcting their erroneous view. And I would say to you that very simply to apply this today, the Word of God, and this is going to sound so simple, the lack of profundity maybe that you might think, when the Word of God is not systematically taught, you will eventually have a slide and other things will come in. It's not on purpose, at least in the minds of those who may be bringing it, but it happens and it happens over and over and over again. When the cross and the preaching of the cross is somehow minimized, the sacraments are obscured. And think of what the sacraments give us a picture of. Our need for washing in the death of Christ. Constantly before us. You can't avoid it. But when you, when you jettison those things because they're ancient and old and people don't get it, what started out as a concern to try to reach people has actually become the very slide towards nothingness that you see everywhere around us. The Word of God is the only thing that can bring correction to us. It's the only thing that brings life in combination with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing that can keep us on course. And it's the only thing that can correct us when we need it. So if we jettison it, if it is not focal in our life, if it's not constantly being given to us, how will we be kept and corrected when we need it? This is why Paul writes. This is why we study it. This is why we listen to God's Word, hear His God, hear His Word weekly, daily, constantly. Because we need it so much, we see this pattern in our lives. It's received initially with great enthusiasm. Distortions come in. But the Word of God can bring us back. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the words of life. Thank you for calling us by it. Thank you for keeping us with it. Thank you for correcting us when we need it. And Lord, this morning, again, we need it. Help us, Lord, to cherish what has been done for us in Christ, to bring you glory for it. And I pray, Lord, for the one who is downcast, who is brokenhearted, who is suffering now with guilt or shame. Pray, God, that you would give them eyes to see the truth of the gospel and save them. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.